Hello, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter, and it's my pleasure to bring you readings from Time Magazine. I need to remind you that you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, let's continue on with uh, Time Magazine's Best Inventions of 2023. Headline, from the world of beauty, a more strategic straightener. Hair straighteners have been a part of beauty routines since their invention in 1909, but they require dry hair. The hot irons can burn skin and the devices weaken locks over the long run. Dyson has hit on a 21st century solution, the air straight. This straightener used with wet hair blows 11.9 liters of hot air a second through a 1.5 millimeter slots at a 45 degree angle, speeding up the process while preventing the sort of damage created by scorching hot irons. The machine is powered by the company's hyperdymium motor. It's more than 100,000 RPM five times faster than an F1 engine, says Lo Chen Neon, senior design engineer at Dyson. And that was written by Chris Stogel Walker. From the world of food and drink, a crunchy convenience. Microwaved food is convenient, but not as satisfying as fresh cooked fare. Kraft Heinz has a solution. The 360 crisp process which debuted with a new product, Lunchables Grilled Cheesies. The sandwich comes in a paperboard container with a susceptor that, when microwaved, directs heat to all the right places, leaving no bite undercooked or singed. You have that perfectly crisp outside, that gooey melty inside, and none of that sogginess or dryness says Alan Kleinerman, Vice President of Disruption. All right, let's look at another best invention of 2023. Smoother moves. This is from the world of accessibility. This is written by Jeff Weiser. The name of the product is Zine, Z-E-E-N. Each year, tens of thousands of people in the United States go to the emergency room after falling, using walkers and canes. The Zine was designed to be a safer walker, using a gas spring technology that inventor Garrett Brown developed when creating the Steadicam movie camera stabilizer in the 1970s. It allows users to smoothly move the chair up and down, so they can more easily shift between walking standing and sitting modes. There was something missing between walkers and wheelchairs, says Brown, co-founder and CEO of Zen maker Exokinetics. He believes the Zen fills that void. All right, let's move on to another best inventions of 2023. Cut chicken waste, W&P reusable stretch wrap. Plastic wrap and aluminum foil are fantastic kitchen aids, but people generally use each piece just once before tossing it in the trash. 
Now, home chefs can cut down on waste by replacing them with WNP silicon stretch wrap. At just three millimeters, it's about as thin as silicon can be without tearing. The reusable wrap can cover a casserole dish or stretch around a cheese block. And WNP says it's safe to put in the oven, microwave, dishwasher, and freezer. The product, says Kate Lubensky, president of WP, is designed to be a workhorse in the kitchen. Uh, I'm from the world of transportation. Headline, a self-driving first. Mercedes-Benz Drive Pilot. Current cars, self-driving modes, still require hands near the wheel and eyes on the road. But with an advanced new multi-sensor system called Drive Pilot, Mercedes-Benz's 2024 S-Class and EQS sedans are the first cars certified for Level 3 self-driving in the United States, that is, in California and Nevada. It means that under certain conditions, mainly highway traffic jams, with low speeds and a well-mapped road, you can completely cede control to the vehicle. From the world of medical care, headline, Accurate Insulin, Beta Bionics, I Let Bionic Pancreas. This is by Chris Stokel Walker. Nearly 7.5 million American adults take insulin, but getting the dosage right can be tough, says Ed Damiano, co-founder of Beta Bionics. Inspired by his diabetic son, Damiano spent 20 years creating the iLet, a credit card size AI-powered smart device that links to a tube plugged into a patient's body. Similar to existing options, it monitors glucose levels every five minutes. Unlike others on the market, it dispenses appropriate insulin microdoses when needed. The device was approved by the FDA in May and recently gained Medicare and Medicare approval. All right, let's look on to the world of medicine. A doctor's aide, Medvis Surgical AR. This was written by Jeff Wilzer. Surgeons frequently must pivot from looking at a patient's data on a screen or clipboard to looking at the patient. That is now changing with the surgical AR platform. Now, a surgeon can wear an AR headset that superimposes data on a patient's body during an operation, creating a visual guidance system that can assist with complicated procedures like brain tumor removal and reduce errors. It's already in action at hospitals like Houston's MD Anderson Cancer Center. Okay, we move away from the inventions now, and we move to the risk report by Ian Bremmer. Headline, the Gaza invasion will not make Israel safer. There are many reasons why Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ordered a ground invasion of Gaza. He wants to ensure that Hamas can never again murder 1,400 Israelis. He needs to take bold action to restore the confidence of his people in their nation's security. 
He may also believe his political survival depends on erasing the shame his government faces following the most consequential security failure in Israel's 75-year-old history. None of that makes a ground invasion of Gaza the right thing to do, however. There are more than two million Palestinians now trapped inside a war zone with nowhere to go. Yes, Israeli forces will take steps to minimize civilian casualties. But because it is one of the world's most densely populated areas, those precautions won't be nearly enough. Beyond the moral problem, Netanyahu should understand that an Israeli invasion of Gaza will not make Israel safer. Inside Gaza, with Hamas dug in, even an Israeli victory would prove costly in Israeli lives, too. Israel is much more likely to be sucked into a long and brutal war than to score for the hoped-for decapitation of Hamas anytime soon. It also now appears inevitable that the large-scale killing of Palestinian civilians will force a regional escalation of the war and could raise the risk of terrorism against Jewish targets around the world. Violence is already rising in the West Bank, which may force Israel's security forces to split their focus even further. That doesn't mean Hezbollah in Lebanon, much less Iran, will fully enter a war with Israel. But we're already seeing rocket attacks from Hezbollah and other Iranian-funded proxy groups, including Houthis in Yemen and provocative acts for militias in Iraq and Syria. Finally, even if Israel could somehow subdue Palestinian resistance in Gaza, controlling security in that territory will prove harder over the long term. The war is radicalizing far more Palestinians than Hamas propaganda ever could. Egypt and the wealthy Gulf Arab states, whatever their past failures to help Palestinians, have no intention of helping Netanyahu solve this problem. The Biden administration wants to support Israel in its hour of need, but has warned Netanyahu that Americans understand all too well the cost of responding to a massive terrorist attack with a plan that has no credible ultimate objective. No one can fault any Israeli for wanting to scotch the terrorist organization that killed 1,400 of its men, women, and children. But Israel will not be made safer by a full invasion of Gaza and a plan that can only kill more innocent people. All right, moving on now to the view section from the world of politics. Headline, The End of Reagan's GOP. MAGA is ascendant, crowed Representative Matt Getz on October 25th. He had reason to be happy. After weeks of chaos, House Republicans had settled on Mike Johnson as Speaker. Johnson is thoroughly in line with nationalist, populist Republicans who engineered Kevin McCarthy's fall. And the episode was another sign that the GOP is no longer Ronald Reagan's party. It is now Donald Trump's party. Since Reagan left office nearly 35 years ago, the GOP has defined itself negatively. The coalition comes together based not on an affirmative program, but in protest over someone else's. The party's greatest moments have been acts of rebuke.
First came the election of 1994. Republicans won control of Congress for the first time in 40 years in a rejection of Bill Clinton's health care plan, tax hikes, and liberal social views. George W. Bush ran in 2000 to restore integrity to the White House, a subtle dig at the character of his otherwise popular predecessor. Things became more difficult for Republicans as affluent voters and voters with advanced degrees, along with millennial and eventually Gen Z voters, turned away from social conservatism. The failures of the Bush administration didn't help. Nor did the lackluster presidential campaigns of John McCain and Mitt Romney. The election of Barack Obama inadvertently reassembled the Reagan coalition of white, college-educated, married couples in the suburbs. These upwardly mobile professionals, many of whom were religiously observant, combined with traditional GOP constituencies in the Great Plains, evangelical Protestant communities in the South, and white non-college voters in the Rust Belt. In 2010 and 2014, these voters helped Republican candidates defy Obama. By the time he departed the White House, Republicans held the House, the Senate, most governors' mansions, and two-thirds of state legislative chambers. This was not because voters loved the GOP. It, it was because voters saw the GOP as the way to block Democratic overreach. Obama was a gift to the Republican Party, a limitless source of conservative outrage. Obama believed that the right mix of progressive policies would win back voters. My hope is if the American people send a message to Republicans, Obama told Rolling Stone in 2012, and they suffer some losses in this next election, that there's going to be some self-reflection going on, that it might break the fever. The message was never sent. Populist resistance intensified. It assumed the form of Trump. Reagan led a party of insiders. Aspirational leaders invested in America's institutions. Trump, by contrast, is the outsider-in-chief. His coalition also looks different from Reagan's. As the electorate became more educated, politics became a struggle over cultural values. And as those values swung left on immigration, race, climate, sex, and gender, and national pride, America has become divided by geography and education. In 2016, Hillary Clinton became the first Democrat to win white voters with a college education or higher since 1956. Joe Biden won them in 2020. Republican pollster Bill McGinterf says that in 2012 the GOP was split. 48% of Republicans did not have college degrees. By 2022, the share of Republicans without degrees had grown to 62%. The share of Republicans with a bachelor's fell to 25%. Trump's GOP is down market, confrontational, politically incorrect, suspicious of institutional authority, and uninterested in following rules set by liberals. Senator Romney's retirement announcement was tacit recognition that the Republican Party 
that ran him for president 10 years ago no longer exists. The party that nominated Reagan 40 years ago is also gone as well. Parties and movements change. Perhaps that is how it should be. Reagan was more of a social conservative than conservative icon Barry Goldwater, who was more of a foreign policy hawk than previous GOP leaders. The issue set of the Trump era, migration, the rise of China and Silicon Valley, the whopping returns to participation in the information economy, conservative control of the Supreme Court, is a far cry from what Reagan faced. Republicans and conservatives must cope with the social and economic conditions of our time. They must strengthen the best aspects of our society and culture while ameliorating the worst. That could mean adopting new attitudes toward the global economy and cultural institutions while unraveling the unaccountable bureaucratic structure of the administrative state. What it cannot mean, and what it can never mean, is abandoning the American tradition of liberty under law in order to satisfy the ego of a single man. And this was written by Matthew Continetti, who is Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. All right, uh, this is from the world of health. This is from the Time, November 20th issue. Five Ways to Cultivate Hope When You Don't Have Any by Angela Haupt. There is a sense, once a whisper, that's growing louder every day. Glaciers are melting. Children are being slaughtered. Hatred runs rampant. Sometimes it feels like the world is approaching a nadir, or like you are. The antidote to any despair might be hope, experts say. It is one of the most powerful and essential human mindsets and possible to achieve even when it feels out of reach. Hope is a way of thinking, says Chan Hellman, founding director of the Hope Research Center at the University of Oklahoma. We know it can be taught. We know it can be nurtured. It's not something you either have or don't have. Many people, he notes, don't fully understand what hope is and what hope isn't. Being hopeful does not mean engaging in wishful thinking or blind optimism. Rather, it's the belief or the expectation that the future can be better and that, more importantly, we have the capacity to pursue that future, Hellman says. The opposite of hope, therefore, is not pessimism, but rather apathy, with its loss of motivation. And while wishing is passive, hope is about taking action. Being hopeful is associated with an array of benefits. Our capacity for hope is one of the strongest predictors of well-being, Hellman says. Research suggests, for example, that people with more hope throughout their lives have fewer chronic health problems are less likely to be depressed or anxious, have stronger social support, and tend to live longer. We asked Hellman and some other experts for strategies that can help cultivate hope, even when it feels unattainable. There are five points to consider. 
Number one, give yourself permission to be hopeful. Remember when you were a kid and well-intentioned adults cautioned you not to get your hopes up? That mentality can linger, notes David Fieldman, a professor of counseling psychology at Santa Clara University in California. The truth is, whether or not we allow ourselves to hope, at some point we are going to be disappointed, he says. I don't think the solution is never allowing ourselves to feel hopeful or giving up on hope altogether. So go ahead and grant yourself permission to look forward to the future with excitement and ambition. Number two, set at least one meaningful goal. In the mid-1980s, the psychologist Charles Snyder set out to determine what qualities hopeful people had in common. He landed on three key factors that form the basis of hope. Theory, a model researchers still rely on today. First, in order to be hopeful, people must think in a goal-oriented way. Make it a point to always be working toward at least one goal that is intrinsically meaningful. Feldman advises. In other words, it shouldn't be something you have to do, like crossing off your work to-do list, but something you want to do. Number three, brainstorm solutions. Another key element of Snyder's hope theory is what researchers describe as pathways, or having the perception that there are plans or ways of getting you from where you are to your goals. If you have set a goal that's meaningful to you, but you can't figure out a way to achieve it, you'll probably feel pretty hopeless. Feldman notes, people who are high in hope, meanwhile, tend to generate lots of pathways. So if one doesn't work out, they have an alternative at the ready. If you're struggling to make a plan, or you keep being blocked, he suggests sitting down with a pen and paper and giving yourself an hour to brainstorm solutions. Number four, call your support team. According to Snyder's research, people who are hopeful tend to have a lot of agency, which in this context means the motivation to actually achieve their goals. One of the best ways to enhance it is with other people. When Feldman is feeling low, he calls his father, who is his biggest cheerleader. Having someone you care about tell you they believe in you can give you a kick in the behind, he says. Make a list of your biggest supporters so when you're feeling unmotivated, you know exactly whom to call for a boost. And number five, lastly, tap into your imagination. Hellman thinks of imagination as the instrument of hope. Let's say you set a goal for the week, like applying for five jobs, helping your kid adjust to preschool, or volunteering for two hours. Spend a few minutes reflecting on or talking about what would happen if you achieved it. How does it impact you? Or how would it benefit others? And who are those other people, he says. You and I have this wonderful capacity to play a, a movie in our head. And when you can see yourself in the future, that is the very essence 
of hope. Moving on now to the world of health. Looking at 2030. Headline, should we end obesity? The weight loss drug explosion has forced a reconsideration of what healthy means. And this is written by Jamie Ducharme. It's unusual for a medication to become a household name. Even more uncommon for its branding to become, like Advil, shorthand for an entire class of products. And rarest of all, but for it to change not just U.S. medicine, but U.S. culture. Ozempic has done all three. Approved in 2017 as a type 2 diabetes medication, Ozempic has largely made its name and a fortune for its manufacturer, Novo Nordisk, as a weight loss aid. Its runaway success mirrors that of similar medications, including Eli Lilly's Monjaro and Wegovi, another Novo Nordisk product and the only one in the trio technically approved for weight loss. Prescriptions for all of them are flying off the pad at an eye-popping rate. They're up 300% since early 2020, with more than 9 million written in the U.S. in the last three months of 2022 alone, according to healthcare industry research from Trillion Health. Demand is so great that there have been shortages of all three drugs, with some diabetes patients struggling to fill their prescriptions as they compete for limited supplies. Plenty of physicians and pharmaceutical executives who stand to get very, very rich say this frenzy is a good thing, given that roughly three-quarters of U.S. adults qualify as either overweight or obese and are thus, according to leading public health authorities, at risk of a range of serious health complications. Obesity is an epidemic, and we urgently need effective treatment, says Dr. Sahar Takochki, an obesity and bariatric medicine specialist at Vanderbilt Health. But others are uneasy about the age of Ozempic, which can feel like a return to an era when thinness was unquestioningly valued. Before the Ozempic tsunami, there was growing support for the Association of Size Diversity and Health's Principles of Health at Every Size, which hold that body size is not a measure of health or worth, and all people deserve non-stigmatizing medical care. The group's influence contributed to the rise of weight-neutral medicine, which sees weight and health as separate and worked in tandem with the wider positive body positivity movement to loosen the diet industry's vice-like grip on American psyches. As the 2000s progressed, women's magazines stopped pushing diets quite so hard. Clothing brands bragged about hiring models larger than a size zero. Even Weight Watchers rebranded as a wellness company called WW. Then Ozempic and its cohort came along, and it turned out lots of people still wanted to be skinny. In fact, some industry watchers predict the rise of Ozempic and its ilk could spell the end of obesity. But as these drugs transform both standard medical practice and cultural ideas about weight loss, a contentious debate is simmering beneath the surface. 
Should we even be treating obesity? Obesity is a common, serious, and costly chronic disease, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, afflicting more than 40% of U.S. adults and almost 20% of children, and putting them at risk of health problems including heart disease, type 2 diabetes, stroke, and some types of cancer. If obesity is a disease, it follows logically that it should be treated. Historically, that has meant prescribing diet and exercise as plan A. But in practice, try as we might, a lot of exercise typically does not result in a significant amount of weight loss, says Glenn Gesser, a professor of exercise physiology at Arizona State University. That's in part because people get hungrier the more they move, offsetting whatever calories they burn at the gym and in part because the body tends to get used to its size and works to stay at that set point, Gesser explains. Lifestyle changes can work for some people, but many lose only modest amounts of weight or regain the pounds over time, a process known as weight cycling that is itself linked to cardiovascular and metabolic health problems. For a long time, doctors had relatively few options to offer patients for whom diet and exercise didn't work. Things like metformin, a type 2 diabetes drug that could cause a modest amount of weight loss, and bariatric surgery, which is effective but few patients opt into. And then came Ozempic. Ozempic, Wigovi, and Monjero all work by simultaneously slowing digestion and mimicking the appetite-suppressing hormone GLP-1. Monjaro also targets a second type of hormone receptor. This double whammy leads to an average 15-20% to reduction in body weight after about a year. They don't work well for everyone, but compared with older meds, the efficacy of these drugs is remarkable. Takuchi says, the weight loss is undeniable. According to data from Novo Nordisk, semaglutide, the generic name for both Ozempic and Wigovi, also slashes the risk of heart attack and stroke by 20% among overweight or obese adults with heart disease. After struggling to lose weight through diet and exercise, Justin, a 29-year-old from North Carolina, who asked to use only his first name to protect his privacy, lost about 30 pounds in less than six months on Wigobi. But as he scaled up his dosage over time, he experienced side effects including acid reflux, nausea, diarrhea, and lethargy. As much as it pained him, he decided his quality of life was better off the drug. Since quitting Wigobi in June, Justin has gained back about half the weight he lost, a common outcome of patients who stop using GLP-1 drugs, which many do either because of side effects or cost, since many weight loss drugs and out-of-pocket prices can exceed $1,000 a month. Despite his mixed experience, Justin would still recommend that someone trying to lose weight consider Wigovi and may someday go back on it himself at a lower dose. 
It made enough of a difference that it's tempting to go back, he says. Many obesity medicine specialists share Justin's feelings. We have effective tools for weight loss now, says Dr. Laura Davison, Director of Medical Weight Management at West Virginia University. So if we have effective tools, why not use them? There is one big reason, according to a passionate group of doctors, researchers, and activists. Obesity never should have been labeled a disease in the first place, and thus may not need to be treated at all. Manipulating weight is not a path to health, says Rajan Chastain, a patient advocate who co-authored a library of health at every size resources. The belief that fewer fat people existing is good. That is weight stigma. As Chastain and others like her see it, GLP-1 drugs are not life-saving anti-obesity medications, but new tools for reinforcing damaging body standards rooted in stigma, not science, while making pharmaceutical companies gobs of money. The idea that obesity is not a disease is still controversial in mainstream medicine. The Centers for Disease Control and American Medical Association disagree with it, as do many physicians in the field. Healthy at any size. I don't even like the connotation, says Dr. Caroline Apovian, co-director of the Center for Weight Management and Wellness at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital. There is unhealthy body weight. Many studies show links between obesity and health problems, ranging from fatty liver and sleep apnea to heart disease and cancer. But some studies also suggest that up to half of people with obesity are metabolically healthy. People in that camp do not have elevated risks for heart disease and death. Some research suggests and overweight people may in fact have a lower risk of premature death than those at normal weight. And even though obesity is considered a risk factor for developing heart disease, studies have found overweight patients tend to fare better than thinner patients when they're treated for cardiovascular conditions, a trend known as the obesity paradox. We've got this entire body of research based on a hypothesis that if you make fat people look like thin people, they'll have the same health outcomes, Chastain says. But she's not convinced that's the case. For one thing, body mass index, the measure commonly used to diagnose obesity, is flawed. A fact acknowledged by influential organizations including the AMA. It cannot, for example, distinguish between fat and muscle which is why some athletes have BMIs that technically put them in the obese range. BMI's path to ubiquity is convoluted. It was first developed in the 1830s by Adolphe Quetelet, a Belgian mathematician interested not in diagnosing obesity, but in defining the average man, an effort that mostly glossed over everyone except white men. The resulting formula, the Quetelet Index, fit neatly into a burgeoning pseudoscientific effort to draw distinctions between people of different races, 
explains scholar Sabrina Strings, author of Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. By the early 1900s, prominent U.S. eugenicists had latched onto the idea that fatness was a marker of moral failing associated with people of color. Fighting back against those notions, black women were integral to fat liberation movements that began in the 1960s and laid the groundwork for the modern body positivity movement. These activists ran counter to the mainstream media, mainstream medical community, and insurance companies, which were growing increasingly concerned about links between obesity and health problems among people they covered. In the 1970s, American physiologist Ansel Keys proposed using the Quetelate Index, renamed BMI, to assess obesity, and the suggestion caught on. Today, experts widely agree that BMI is imperfect, and yet it's still used in research to diagnose obesity and to determine who is eligible for drugs like Wegovy. We're knowingly saying we don't even know how to measure excess fat, but we're going to use the measure we have anyway and define two-thirds of the population as diseased, says Dr. Lisa Erlanger, a Seattle-based family medicine physician. Erlanger believes that weight functions less as a measure of health than as a social determinant of health. In other words, a non-medical factor that can nonetheless affect health through its impact on overall wellness. People with obesity often experience weight stigma in healthcare, the workplace, and social settings, all of which can harm their health. They are also likely to be non-white and non-college educated. Socioeconomic factors also link to poorer health because of structural inequality. As such, Erlinger has stripped weight from her medical practice wherever possible. Her office is designed to be comfortably navigated by people who are larger. The waiting room reading material doesn't mention diets or weight loss. She doesn't weigh patients without permission or prescribe weight loss and especially not weight loss drugs. I support anyone's efforts to reduce their marginalization in society, Erlanger says. But at the same time, I have an ethical obligation not to offer a treatment with false promises. It wasn't weight loss that motivated Irene, who is 54 and lives in Washington State, to ask her doctor for a semi-glutide prescription. Irene, who asked to use only her first name to preserve her privacy, has binge eating disorder and often stayed up late into the night snacking for hours after her husband and children had gone to bed. She read on social media that semi-glutide had helped other people overcome binge eating disorder, so it seemed worth a try. But it also felt something like self-betrayal. For most of her life, Irene was locked in a cycle of dieting, calorie counting, and losing and regaining weight. Then, a few years ago, she learned about health at every size and threw herself into the community with gusto. She sought out doctors who shared her perspective and joined a fat liberation group, which made her deeply hesitant about using semaglutide, a drug infamous for helping already skinny Hollywood starlets slim down. 
It has been tricky to lose some weight and not get caught up in that as an aspiration going forward, Irene says. Now she has to balance her support for the movement with the reality that in an effort to manage her eating disorder, she is one of the millions of people driving demand for an anti-obesity medication to new heights. As interest in these drugs grow, it's not so far-fetched to imagine a world where all anyone needs to lose weight is a prescription. Davison, the obesity specialist from West Virginia, says about 80% of her patients are on a weight loss drug, and she feels that anyone who is overweight or obese should consider some form of treatment, since they may develop complications over time even if they are healthy at the moment. Everyone is metabolically healthy, she says, until they're not. But other physicians are struggling with their place in this new world. When Dr. Mara Gordon, a family physician in New Jersey, finished her medical training almost a decade ago, she believed weight loss was a good thing. But the longer she practiced and saw how her patients shut down when she talked about weight, and the more studies she read, the more she began to doubt whether weight loss should be an assumed goal. I found increasingly that it was all downside, she says. Gordon minimized her weight's role in her practice, focusing instead on other markets of health, things like insulin resistance, blood pressure, chronic pain, mental health, and quality of life. Today, though, more and more patients come into her office asking for Ozempic and Wegovy by name. Often, she says, patients who want to drop pounds are technically overweight, but have little medical reason for taking a GLP-1 drug. Nevertheless, when she looks at the whole picture, test results may not signal a problem, but they're still desperate to lose weight. Maybe so they have the energy and mobility to play with their kids or to improve their body image or simply fit into a world that prizes thinness. If you're facing hatred and fat phobia on a daily basis, if you can't do the things you need to do because the chair at your office is not the correct size, a medication like Ozempic may genuinely help, Gordon says. I wish we lived in a less superficial society. But my job is to take care of the patient right in front of me. In the end, she often writes the prescription. And that will conclude our coverage of Time Magazine for today. I need to remind you that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. My name is Nancy Porter, and it has been my pleasure to share Time magazine with you.